We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. It's episode 113 of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast. I'm well. Scott's well. He's with me. We're not allowed to intro much, Scott. How are you? Well, thanks. Yourself? I'm good. Dear listener, we're launching straight into it. And our first topic, transgenerational trauma. Uh, You know, if you're a keen fan of the show and you've listened to a few of recent episodes, you might remember that I had a conversation with the 12th man about transgenerational trauma. And here's what I had to say. I've previously um, talked about the fact that I don't think that guilt is transferred through the generations, and I don't think victimhood is either. I don't think these things are passed down um, transgenerationally, as he suggests. Um, So, yeah, I don't accept this transgenerational trauma. No, there is obviously transgenerational Mm. poverty, Mm. but, you know, that's a different matter, isn't it? And certainly we, we, we certainly should be doing something about poverty in whatever community it exists. Mm. Well, there we go, Scott. You weren't involved, but I was there with the 12th man. And we got an, an email from a listener, um, from Brett, and he says, uh, Hi, Iron Fist and crew. I've been listening to you guys for a little while. Unfortunately, not yet motivated enough to donate, but hey, I'm a student and need to watch my pennies. However, big shout-out to you and all the great work you're doing. I agree with about 95% of the things you say. Where I don't agree, I respectfully listen. And so far, so good, Scott, because if, if my wife agreed with 95% of the things I said, I'd be over the moon. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's good, Brett. Second paragraph. Uh, I'd like to challenge the Iron Fist, though, to put his money where his mouth is and prove that you can examine issues and possibly change your mind, specifically in regards to transgenerational trauma, TGT. In the most recent broadcast, you seem to say you do not believe it occurs. However, there are two very straightforward mechanisms for TGT to occur. First, cultural and educational factors. In the case of our Indigenous people, those families affected by the stolen generations meant that they had no training on mental stability or how to raise and properly care for themselves and their children. Being raised in institutions, often by religious groups, screws people up. Thus, their children are raised poorly and so forth. It is really pretty simple. The government policies screwed up their social structure and these people could not learn how to be normal. Their hate and fear was passed on to their children and grandchildren. And then he says, uh, secondly, epigenetics. Fascinating field. I'm only a layman in. However, this mechanism provides a direct way for genetic expression to be altered and passed down intergenerationally. Have a look around at this. Plenty of information on the web. Good on you. He went on about a few other things, but that was the main gist of it. Brett, terrific to get some feedback. And well, the short answer is I think you're right. I think I was wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll say a few things in my defence. But um, uh, quick Google search. 
um, Scott, transgenerational trauma is trauma that is transferred from the first generation of trauma survivors to the second and further generations of offspring of the survivors via complex post-traumatic stress disorder mechanisms. And this... You know, I can agree with that, mm. with his, uh, with his uh, nomination of the stolen generation. Mm. I think he was. I think he was onto something there. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Yes, but well, well. Let me finish this a little definition from Google, and then yeah. and then I'll I'll take the edges off my mistake a little bit. But in a sense, in essence, yeah. Okay. Let me just finish this. So from Google again, um, what they found was um, with concentration camp syndrome also known as survivor syndrome, appeared, clinicians observed in 1966 that large numbers of children of Holocaust survivors were seeking treatment in clinics in Canada. The grandchildren of Holocaust survivors were overrepresented by 300% among the referrals to a child psychiatry clinic in comparison to their representation in the general population. So that's sort of statistical evidence of... Um, of the children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors suffering some sort of transgenerational trauma. Scott, um, having just talked about, though, the, um, the book Thinking Fast and Slow, I'm extremely cautious about looking at statistics like that and prescribing a causation to it. Because, as we know from that book, when you're dealing with small numbers, you have the ability to move away from the mean. So the Jewish population would be a small population compared to the general population, and it's quite possible. It just makes it easier for them to be statistically, you know, deviating from the mean in the first place and... There might also, with that, be a slight cultural one as well, Scott, with the with the Jews, because if you were, say, you know, Jewish and living in New York, if you're not seeing a psychiatrist, you, you're probably quite unusual because they just exactly yeah. culturally they're into that sort of stuff as much as you know, yeah, um, as much as eating bagels and and um, and all the rest of it. So be wary of the statistic, is what I'm saying, but. Um, uh, Yes, there is such... I guess I was loose in my terminology. So, um, so yeah, if there is trauma in a family, then certainly that can affect parenting skills and cause all sorts of social issues that the kids are then brought up in circumstances where they don't know what a proper... You know, they've got poor role models, so they continue the same sort of... Um, dysfunction that their parents were exhibiting. And so you could see that percolating through generations. And certainly poverty would be one of those that it's harder to work out of, but not impossible. And at least the 12th man, the 12th man pointed that out. I guess I was talking more about this guilt and victimhood um, from the... Uh, the, the that's, you know, is alleged to travel, you know, automatically through the generations. And, you know, if you're a well-to-do 
uh, Aboriginal person in Australia in the middle or upper middle classes um, to claim victimhood through transgenerational methods, I think is very unfair and inaccurate. So, um, so there's a dysfunction that is being transferred through the generations in the Aboriginal community. And I think it gets really complicated as to the nature of that dysfunction. Is it from stolen land? Is it from poverty? Is it from child abuse? It would be a very complicated formula of of dysfunctions that are being transferred transgenerationally to to many of them, unfortunately. So, so there you go, Scott. I reckon he's right. The transgenerational trauma does exist. In my defence, I'd say that guilt and victimhood aren't automatically transferred, which is what people kind of imply. And, um, yeah, some people are very quick to claim victimhood when they've clearly escaped it. But, yeah, there you go. TGT, a real thing, I'd have to say. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's got a point with the um, Aboriginal people, for sure. Mm. And it is something that um, I've been guilty of not recognising myself. Um, you know, uh, if you want the whole history of it, I mean, I was initially very reluctant to issue a national apology to the stolen generations mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, looking back on it, nothing horrible happened or anything like that. So, yeah, I, I do think he has a good point there with the Aboriginal people, though. Mm. So I think he's um, he's hit the nail right on the head there. Mm. I would because say he, he's, he talks about people that were brought up in orphanages that were run by the church and that screws them up. So yep, yeah. I could we'll see that happening. And you hear about people who are subject to child abuse, unfortunately, growing up to more than the average be abusers themselves, which is a sad sort of yeah, thing to happen. Exactly. So yeah. When we're looking at the Aboriginal community, though, the thing that we, in terms of what is being transferred. What trauma is being transferred transgenerationally? I would argue it's the trauma of of uh, poverty and child abuse and drug abuse that's being transferred, and not so much, you know, having land stolen by white people two hundred years ago. So, if we want to fix things for people, you know, that's what needs to be fixed. To, Bring them back up to speed. But there we go. Good on you, Brett. Um, well done. Please, dear listeners, send us some feedback. Just while still on the topic of Aboriginals, because um, we had an extensive conversation about Australia Day, and there's a link to an article by uh, an Alice Springs councillor, Jacinta Nepidinpa uh, Price, and she's... Um, from Alice Springs, and she's against changing Australia Day. And she said, there's no need to change Australia Day. People who celebrated on January 26 need not feel guilty. I keep hearing that Aboriginal people want to change the date of Australia Day. Well, what about the Aboriginal people who don't want to change the date, Miss Price wrote. It's the Aboriginal middle class who are concerned about date changes. Those pushing the agenda come from privilege themselves in comparison to the Aboriginal people most marginalised. I'm sure if we pressured enough to change the date, then there will be something else for Aboriginal middle-class activists and guilt-ridden white fellas to be offended about. Um, she goes on about other stuff. So, you know, that's a few issues we've raised, Scott, as in very difficult to say that you speak on behalf of a group. It's 
it's quite bigoted and racist to assume that an entire group, just because of their race, think exactly the same about an issue. And um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I you know I, I don't know where, how I feel about Australia Day or anything like that. It's you know it's a day off to me, but I do understand we do need a national day and that sort of thing. I'm not sure what date it should be. Um, I understand the arguments for changing the date and that sort of stuff, but I also think that um, a fair amount of navel gazing has gone into this whole thing, so it's uh, it's probably I think what she said there's right that it's the middle class that will find something to complain about that uh, that they really don't have anything to complain about. But anyway, in, in to her credit, mm. she says you know um, uh, the issues we should be looking at are domestic violence, alcohol, and drug abuse. And she's bang on the money there. They're the, they're the things they really need to look after first. Mm. Our friend Brian Morris at the um, uh, he's got two more ambassadors with his national secular lobby, and they are Jane Caro and Philip Adams. That's a good one. Philip Adams, well done. Yeah, yeah good on you, Brian. Well, you'll be ple- you'll be pleased to know that I have begun contributing twenty dollars per calendar month to the. Uh, to the National Secular Lobby. Good on you, Scott. Yeah. Yep. Good on you. Mm. So, uh, so that's moving along nicely, I think, by the sounds of things. Uh, National Secular Lobby. Well, I mean, if they've got to get the the ambassadors first, and then after that, they're going to look at staff, aren't they? I'm, I'm, I don't know how it works exactly, but yeah. Um, yeah, the first few ambassadors he had, I, I didn't really know of them that much. And his theory was to have celebrity ambassadors, but certainly Jane Carroll and, and Phil Adams, like great choices. So, yeah, you know who they are. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Um, hmm. Scott in, Tasma- in Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> I did hear about this on the radio, and I thought to myself, "Yeah, I must look this up." And then you sent this through to me, and I thought to myself, "Bloody," hmm. you know. Tasmanian home. If, if, this had, if, this had, if this had happened in Texas, you could understand it. Mm. But anyway, mm. yeah. A Tasmanian Go home on, has been going. sold by a council to recover rates not paid by the owners who said they were exempt because the land belonged to God. Uh, yeah. A rural property at Mole Creek owned by Rembertus and Fanny Beerapoot. Unusual names. Uh Earlier this year, the beer poots wrote to the council advising it to take the matter up with God. <laughs> anyway, the council exercised their rights as they can um, and had the um, property sold at auction for $120,000. Apparently, Scott, the market value of the house was $300,000. Mm, so they've taken quite a hit because of their faith. Yeah. In their letter to the council, they said they were unable to bow down to a false god. We believe that our Heavenly Father is sovereign and he reigns today. Thus we worship him and him alone so that his will is established on the earth. So um, so they've taken quite a hit for their faith. Mm. Scott, I was going to run a competition where I said... Uh, Because we're always talking about religious nutters. And 
I wanted a competition for a collective noun for a group of religious nutters. Got any ideas come to mind initially for a collective noun? You know, we talk about like a murder of crows, flock of sheep. You know, we've got a bunch of religious nutters. Is there a, a word you could come ah. up with? Well, you've got a pot of whales, you've got a flock of birds, a flock of sheep, um, a herd of beasts. Yes. Um, a herd of nutters? Yeah, that'll be all right. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I just quickly went online and thought, well, I wonder if there's a collective noun for just nuts. And yeah. this was a sort of a joke, you know, competition type thing. But the answer that was provided is going to work perfectly for our case yeah. here. So, dear listener, yeah. from now on, <laughs> you heard it here first. A herd of religious the, nutters the, will be the, called, the, yes. A collective noun for a group of religious nutters is a scrotum of religious nutters. A what, sorry? A scrotum. A scrotum of religious nutters. <laughs> a scrotum of religious nutters, a collective noun. I think that's oh, fantastic. <laughs> and we're going to give you an example of such a scrotum of religious nutters uh, coming right up now because <laughs> our friend um, Donald Trump, uh, he's been in the news, Scott, with... Uh, with the gift that keeps on giving. indeed. And um, he's, he's called for a national prayer day. So uh, let me just find this clip initially. And I just want to thank you all for being with us today because we're going to be signing a... Day of prayer, and that'll be on Sunday. It'll be a very special day, and I don't know when this was done last, but it's been a long time ago. Is that a correct statement? It's been a long time ago. So I'm going to sign it, and then a few of the folks will say a few words, and Pastor Jeffress will say a prayer for not only the people so affected, Mm -hmm. so horribly affected by Hurricane Harvey, but for the people of our nation, and in fact, the people of our world. Yes, Yes, the people of our world. And so he's called for a a national prayer day. And if you look at the video, he is then surrounded by a group of people who could only be described, Scott, as a scrotum of religious nutters. And uh, I'll just give you a bit of a flavour of the prayer. Father, your word says, if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face, you will forgive their sins and heal their land. Father, I thank you that we have a president, President Donald Trump, who believes in the power of prayer. We thank you for a vice president like Vice President Pence who works alongside of him. And we thank you that the president had the wisdom to call our nation right now for a day of prayer this coming weekend, Father. This is what we need. We pray for healing for our country. We pray for physical healing for those who have suffered the devastation from Hurricane Harvey. Father, be with them. Provide for their needs. Help us to be the embodiment of Jesus Christ as we minister to them. But, Father, we also want to pray for spiritual healing, emotional healing for our country. This country has been... Oh, it goes on and on, but you get the picture. It's And this is happening in the Oval Office with just a bunch of people bowing their head and just going for it like that. And um, it's it's an ugly scene, isn't it, Scott? 
<laughs> it is uh, confronting. Um, I don't know whether ugly is the right word, but it is definitely confronting. Mm. And when you look at it and that sort of thing, you just think to yourself, you know, the founding fathers must be spinning in their graves. Mm. Because, you know, there's quotes of them saying that this is not a Christian nation. It is a nation that is supposed to be secular and that sort of thing. And it's... <sighs> the whole secularism is being trampled by this current president. It's absolutely phenomenal that, the, that he's getting away with it. Yeah, I mean, you just can't believe a word that Donald Trump says about anything. But I, I'm just wondering whether he's actually starting to believe this stuff because apparently these evangelicals just infest the White House and who knows, maybe he's, maybe he's actually starting to find God in there. I don't know. Well, who knows, but it's absolutely... It really is incredible that you had Obama there for eight years and, you know, he went to church and that sort of stuff, but he never actually had a whole group of them, a whole scrotum of them around the, the <laughs> Oval Office praying for him. You know, it's... Yep. Uh, open praying. It's you know, really... Open and obvious prayer, you know, televised nationally and all the rest of it. Uh, it's actually in breach of the Bible, Scott, and... Absolutely it is, mm. yeah. I mean, it's Matthew, I think it was, that said that you should, um, you should bow, you know, bow your head down privately in, the, in, the, in your bedroom or something like that. Scott, you are an expert yeah. on Matthew. Like, you know, in the, in the early episodes when we were doing Bible <laughs> quizzes, you were very good with Matthew, and you're spot on again, dear listener. Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 to 6. Um, well, I can't quote the chapter and no, verse, but, but you I did, can quote what You did pretty from, well so. to quote Matthew, yeah. <laughs> Um, and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Also says, don't pray with vain repetitions and don't... Um, um, also, don't ask for stuff because your father, the Lord, knows what you need and instead um, pray like this. And then it goes on to list uh, the Lord's Prayer, Scott. So... Doing it openly and asking for stuff is actually uh, goes against Matthew chapter six. Mm. Um, Scott, um, freedom of speech. We got a few things to talk about in that regard. Did you, dear listener, see a video of some far right nationalists who? staged a mock beheading to protest against the building of a mosque in Bendigo in central Victoria. It happened a little while ago, but they've only just recently been found guilty of inciting serious contempt of Muslims. So when you look at the video, uh, they're in the foyer of a, of a building and 
they have this dummy which one of them yells out Allah Akbar and then slits the throat of the dummy which has got this fake blood inside which spills everywhere and they're sort of joking and laughing about it. And um, so the so-called Bendigo 3 argue that their video, which was released on the United Patriots um, front Facebook page, was an act of free speech. Um, but the magistrate disagreed, arguing the video was clearly intended to create serious contempt for or ridicule of ridicule of Muslims. So they become the first people charged under Victoria's Racial and Religious Tolerance Act. Um, what did you think, Scott? Um, people are going to say that I've got my foot in the camp with right-wing Tony, but... Uh... I agree that the uh, Bendigo 3 were badly done by. Um, I think that uh, that the uh, it was the court and that sort of stuff that said that they'd cross the line and that sort of thing. I didn't think they'd cross the line. I thought they had, were protesting. And as such, you've got to give people some leniency with protest. Mm-hmm. And you've got to acknowledge that... Uh, some of what goes on in protest and that sort of stuff is a stretching of the truth. And I also think that um, the guys were just basically mimicking what has been happening in Islamic State-controlled territory. Mm -hmm. And while no one thinks that you're going to have beheadings if this mosque goes ahead in Bendigo, I do think that... um, I do think the three of them had the right to say what they said, and I think that the Andrews government has probably crossed the line with um, with this legislation. I, I, anyway, I agree with you, Scott. Where I've got it I wrong. reckon that uh, <laughs> they should have been allowed to do what they did, and the community could say, what a bunch of buffoons and idiots, and we don't want anything to do with these people. Um cross them off, you know, take them off the Facebook friends list and all the rest of it. But to actually convict them of a criminal offence, um, well, I think the judge made the right decision based on the legislation, but here's the scary part, is the legislation, Scott. So under Victoria's Racial and Religious Tolerance Act, Section 8, uh, Subsection 1, a person must not, on the ground of the religious belief or activity of another person or class of persons engage in conduct that incites hatred against, serious contempt for, revulsion or severe ridicule of that other person or class of persons. So to summarise, a person must not, on the ground of religious belief, Either A, inside hatred, B, serious contempt, C, revulsion, or D, severe ridicule of another group or class of persons. Scott, severe ridicule of? Well, severe ridicule of, I think that's, I think that's where they really crossed the line there because, you know, ridicule of, it's, um, you've got to be able to ridicule people. You know, you've got to be able to ridicule people to get your message across and that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I was just thinking of Sean McAuliffe at Mad as Hell and um, the other one, what's it called? Anyway, I've lost it. It's on the ABC. But, you know, they routinely ridicule people for their beliefs and that sort of stuff. 
Now, admittedly, they don't take aim at Muslims, so they're not going to fall foul of this legislation. But it's a um, it's a very dangerous thing when you ridi- when you outlaw ridiculing people. Look, under this act, um, you know, you couldn't have produced the life of Brian in. In the state of Victoria. No, you couldn't have. No, you couldn't have because that would have been uh, ridiculing Christians. Correct. Yep. And Scott, you know, we in this podcast, it could be argued by some, could be guilty of serious contempt for or revulsion of um, a group of people because of, on the grounds of religious belief. Like, it's quite possible. Inciting yeah, serious it is quite form. possible. Like, yeah. This just goes way beyond what's acceptable. Well, what what's acceptable is good law. Like, for goodness sake, we've said it a few times in the past on when it comes to freedom of speech. Um, well, the other example would be, Scott, would be an expose on Scientology, you know, which outlines all of the nasty things that Scientology does, uh, mm. you know. That that would also um, uh, incite serious contempt for or revulsion of a group of people based on the grounds of religious belief. I mean, there's all manner of things yeah. get caught up by this, and uh, not just potentially a hum- humble podcast like ours. So, well, that's very true. But you know, Scientology is one of those things that should be ridiculed, and that sort of exactly thing. it should be held up to ridicule, and that's sort of, and that type of thing on a. On a routine basis because it is ridicule worthy yes and yet because it's a religion it's getting a free pass which i find absolutely ridiculous there are religions that should be hated that should we should be contemptuous of that 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 revolt a revoltive uh, revoltive uh revolting revolting and uh, and deserve severe ridicule that's just the facts. It, just because they're a religion doesn't mean that they should escape um, that sort of criticism. So, mm. Scott, we've said in the past that as far as, well, I've said, as far as I'm concerned, the line that you cannot cross would be inciting violence. Once you've said, hey, mm. everybody, grab your pickaxes and let's head over to that group of yeah. Muslims over there or that group of Jews... And beat the crap out of them, That's yeah. when you... Um, are inciting violence, that's speech that has to be stopped. Um, Mm. So that, dear listener, is a line which I reckon works in a number of cases, and there are a few that we're going to talk about now and we can discuss whether that sort of line of inciting violence works in other situations. And... Kind of a, uh, related to that, Scott, is that there was a famous, well, a famous or infamous anti-vaccination advocate called Kent Heckenlively. And Kent wanted to come to Australia and, and espouse his version of anti-vaccination theory. And the mm. Australian government um, refused a visa. Well, before we go on, okay. what do you think of that? Well, just on that um, on that very mm. thin amount of evidence that you've given me and that sort of stuff, I think that he should have been given his visa. Right. 
because he's got the right to speak and that sort of stuff. And we just got to turn around and say, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. There's no scientific evidence and that sort of stuff. So get started. Right. And we, <laughs> mm-hmm. and based on what I've just said before, has he incited violence? And no, he has say We would say no on the inciting violence. Yep. Mm-hmm. At, the, at the end of the next three minutes, Scott, I hope I've changed your mind, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> Hang on, dear listener. A few more facts, just so that we're all on board with the basic background of the story. Um, uh, da, 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 da. So this is from The Age. Mr Heckenlively insidiously urges parents not to have their children vaccinated. Um, with the backing of the ALP, the Coalition has denied him a visa... He is uh, linked to Andrew Wakefield, a disgraced former doctor who debunked, whose debunked study alleges a link between measles, mumps and rubella vaccine with autism and has been central to the anti-vaccination movement. Um, for the record, um, you know, the scientific evidence is overwhelming that uh, vaccination does not... Um, cause the problems that these people allege. Immigration Minister Peter Dutton, whose default position is to argue for individual freedom, says correctly that Mr Hecken-Lively is a danger, that his right to free speech does not extend to using misinformation to encourage people to put their children and others in peril. So that's from that, from the age. You're still with your original position. I would argue... Yep. I would argue that the people who are going to attend a talk given by a noted anti-vaxxer, because he calls himself a number one anti, world's number one anti-vaxxer, mm-hmm. I would suggest that the people who are going to attend a talk that's given by him are probably already in the anti-vaxxer camp anyway, and they're just looking for something to... Uh, Give them a little leg up and that sort of stuff, and give them a, a little push over the line. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I would, I would argue that um, the people who are going to be listening to his message are already receptive to that message anyway, and that he's not going to be doing a hell of a lot of extra damage if he did come. Well, if people were sort of um, on the edge and not sure, he might well push them over. They'd have to be some sort of an inclination there, and then he would just potentially. Um, convince them to, you know, if they're thinking about it, to not vaccinate their kids, you know, if he's a good advocate for his case and he's world famous and he certainly seems to have changed a number of opinions around the world, I think we could say, Scott, that his intention is to change people's minds and he could be expected to at least change some who might already have been thinking that way. So... Um, what I would say, Scott, is the reason why we were happy to say inciting violence is where the line is when it comes to free speech is because violence leads to physical injury. And physical injury is something that we can see as an objective fact that, you know, somebody's had their head split open or whatever in a fight. So... It's not subjective, which is hurt feelings, because 
you know, I could say the same thing to 10 different people and some of them might have hurt feelings and some might not. It's entirely subjective. It depends on the view of the person receiving the words as to whether they feel insulted or ridiculed or not or offended. Whereas uh, when it comes to physical, you know, injury, it's just objective. Either, you know, somebody's arm's broken or it's not. So, so I would say to you, Scott, the reason why we or I set the line at... Um, at inciting violence is because of the result, which is injury. Now, looking at this character, the anti-vaccinator guy, if he is successful in any respect and causes some people to change their mind and not get their kids vaccinated, the end result could well be some kids ending up with a disease that they did not need to have potentially very serious and potentially fatal. Like, his, uh, his words have a very foreseeable effect that at least a handful of kids might end up very sick and maybe one of them dies. Would that be a fair enough thing to say? Yeah, that's a fair uh, assumption that you could, you could put up there. You could say that his words could result in someone dying. Yeah. So where we talk about people, However. <laughs> where we talk about people are free to say whatever they like and free to be wrong about something, except if it incites violence. Well, I think implicit in that exception is except if it causes real physical injury to somebody. Like, is just the other way of saying incites violence, in a sense. <clears throat> and, and is the key component? It does make is the, sense. Yeah. Is the key component in it really? And so I would say, Scott, well, this guy is actually quite foreseeable that he's, you know, well, we're most of the time happy for people to um, sprout their craziness. Uh, the fact that his actually leads quite foreseeably to physical damage, injury, means that um, the, the interests of the common good outweigh his free speech. He crosses the line. That's what I'd say. Have I convinced you? Um, no, you've gone some of the way, but you haven't convinced me completely. And I understand what you're saying. I do agree with you that, you know, there's an, there's an argument there that uh, if he does convince parents not to vaccinate their kids and their kids end up sick and potentially dead, then it's, it, lines up, it lines up with what he said. I agree with that, but... What, what do you think of the famous um, quote, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., um, the fire in the, you know, the fire in the crowded theatre? Do you agree with that, with that principle, that uh, freedom of speech uh, is allowed, but, for example, as stated in that famous case, you cannot cry out fire in a crowded theatre because of the riot and stampede that will follow causing injury to people. What Do you agree with that general principle? Yeah, I do agree with that general principle, yeah. I'm just not convinced that this is, this is yelling fire in a crowded theatre. I think he'll be lecturing to people who are already on the cusp of making their mind up to say that they do not wish to vaccinate their children and, you know... See, I reckon this... They were probably talk, he was probably talking to those people anyway. See, I reckon this guy, he is, 
he's shouting fire in a crowded theatre effectively. Um, that, that's yeah, what I'm not the anti-vaccinators yeah. are doing. They're, they're falsely shouting fire in a world crowded with conflicting truths where people don't know what's true and are unable to, term, to determine if there really is a fire. I reckon that's what's going on here. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah, I can. I can see that. But no, I, okay. I still think that he should have been given his visa. So. Right. <laughs> okay. And and even though you'd accept, what if I told you that that based on the number of people he would see in say stadiums and stuff, and uh, that statistically. chance that one child would die of measles or mumps or something or whatever because of what he's done, because of his speeches. Because I'm I'm gathering part of our difficulty here might be you just doubt his actual success. But if I was to tell you that statistically you could say, yep, there's an 80% chance that a kid will die because of his activities, what would you say then? It's up to the parents, isn't it? You know, if the parents are stupid enough to follow that sort of advice, then you know they've, uh, they've got themselves to blame for it. You know, it's um, so it's up to the yeah. parents to take the risk. Yeah. The community, it's not our job. If the parent, if the parents, if the parents are that stupid that they're going to listen to a nut job like yeah. that, and they're going to follow his advice, then. Their child is placed at risk, and their child could die. So it's up to the com- it's you know. not up to the community to filter out dangerous characters. It's up to parents. Well, it is up to parents. Yeah, it's not up to us. All right, I've, I've just come across this great deal on on toasters <laughs> out of China. They're they're yeah they're a quarter of the price of a normal toaster, Scott. And I'm going to yeah, I'm, how safe I'm going to import them. You, 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 I'm going to import them into Australia, how safe Scott. Are they? And they're, how safe they're really they? good, except there's just one in a hundred thousand uh, catches fire, unfortunately. And I reckon I can sell a million of them. So there's a good chance that ten of them will catch fire, and as a result, one house will burn down. Um. I'm going to put a sign on them, Scott, to say that that's, you know, the odds here when you buy this toaster. But just, you know, one in a hundred thousand, just, it just spontaneously can bust. Do we as a community <laughs> then say to parents, you know what, it's up to you whether you buy a faulty toaster or not. We don't care. That's your choice. Um, no. I or do we as a community a... stand at customs and, and imports and, and say, so you know you what, can't import we've those got some toasters. rules you and regulations yeah. here that, that say <laughs> you can't bring this dangerous toaster in. What's so special yeah, about there's a, there's, free speech? There's a difference between someone that, was, someone that wants to speak and then someone who wants to bring in faulty toasters. Well, the dangers... And that is the difference. Well, well this, is, you know, this is the thing. Free, you know, free speech advocates just go too crazy. Like... Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. You can't cry fire in a crowded theatre. There is a limit to free yeah, speech. I agree with that. If you're going to hurt I somebody, agree with somebody that you can't yeah. say whatever you want to say. If you're going to physically hurt them, yeah. This character, the anti-vaccinator, yeah, is going to physically hurt somebody. Mm. 
Uh, so, we shall so I see. can import Yeah, I mean, like, he's been denied his visa anyway, so it's just fine. Yeah, so. but well, the point is whether it's, you know. whether it's a good idea or not, Scott. So you're you're, you're well, happy I mean, to stop faulty toasters? I think I think that I think that if he, I think that if he was allowed a visa and that sort of stuff, if he was brought over here and then he could debate someone, then the debater would be able to show him up for the idiot that he is. Yes, but um, but besides debating somebody and being shown up as an idiot, he also ends up at all sorts of other functions, you know, where there's nobody to counter his argument and he has a full free reign and, you know. Causes the problem. Yeah, there's that, there's that for sure. But uh, but I also think that if he was in if he was in town and that sort of stuff, the the um, well, you know, the the health report on the ABC would be blasting him and that sort of stuff. Yeah, the, but Scott, we if I import the toasters, the, network, the networks would be running that sort of stuff too. I, I could Sorry? import the toasters, and we could have a big sign on yeah. it saying these toasters are faulty. Don't buy them. But would we allow mm-hmm. the the toasters in in the first place? No, we wouldn't allow them in in the first place because they were proven to be faulty. Yeah. I'm saying that we should restrict the trade in faulty snake oil salesmen where real injury is reasonably foreseeable. There we go. And that's fine. And, um, you know, you can you can make that argument for sure. I haven't convinced you then. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> because, because free speech is so important. It is very important, yes. Okay, I did my best, dear listener. <laughs> we agreed on one thing tonight. That's, that's yeah. all right. <laughs> uh, dear listener, just that fire in the crowded theatre is an interesting case um, with that Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. because we've mentioned it before, Scott, but it's worth repeating that that was a case where a... Um, uh, a flyer was being distributed in Yiddish, which was back in 1919, advising people to avoid the draft and not to end up uh, fighting in the First World War. And this was, um, uh, um, you know, at the time the government was trying to get people to sign up to go over. So... Uh, so Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. actually decided in that case that the person who produced the flyer was actually not protected by free speech. So when you sort of hear the famous quote, you think, oh, that must have been a great advocate of, of free speech. And in the end, he actually decided against this, um, this person who was producing this flyer saying, don't go um, overseas as part of the, um, the war effort which is just a little aside. He also is the guy who said taxes are what we pay for a civilised society. So he's had a few famous statements. Oh, that was him, was it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Language warning. And he was a justice in the Supreme Court, Mm, wasn't he? was, yep, in the early 1900s. Language warning, dear listener. There are coming up a few nasty words. (laughs) Any kids in the vicinity, uh, switch us off and get them out the road. (laughs) Uh, Article here, Scott, um, a guy, Danny Lim, in 2015, he wore a sandwich board, um, which uh, was very insulting of of Tony Abbott. And his, his billboard said, 
tricky lying tony you can't screw education health jobs and the environment but the word can't had the a flipped around so it basically read tricky lying tony you can't screw education health jobs and the environment and um he was charged with offensive conduct and um he was cleared of offensive conduct last week he was cleared, wasn't yeah. he? This article says that the case highlights how tensions can arise where the legal system seeks to regulate something as nebulous as language and offence. These are tricky ones, Scott, these sort of just nasty swear word ones, because, you know, they don't cross the line of inciting violence and they don't cause mm, that's real true. physical injury. But inside my head I'm going, well, we just don't really want to listen to people saying unpleasant words in public whenever they like. I'm trying to find reasons to stop people in the situation, but I'm struggling, Scott, to come up with one. Okay, but in this situation, the target was not a... It wasn't just generally a person in the street. The target was Tony Abbott, who is a professional politician... And he should be used to the slings and arrows and that sort of stuff of being out there in the public eye. So I didn't have an issue with what he said. And, you know, yeah, he's got it set up so that the C-A-N-T-A is inverted. Mm. So it does look like the word Mm. cunt. But it's not. It is, um, you know, it it was clear what he was trying to do. But it was also it was also aimed at one person in particular, so I didn't really have an issue with it. It'd be it'd be a different story if he was out there actually saying, you know, you you see and that sort yep. of stuff. If he was actually out there saying yep. it, I think that would be a different story to him wearing a sandwich board with okay, this on. So he has managed to sort of um, trick it up a little bit to, to to make it a bit hazier as to the actual offensiveness of it. But, Scott, just as a general mm. principle, I mean, if somebody's just walking down the street saying F this and see that and F this and see that and there's, you know, kids around and all the yeah, rest of exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. I do think that you've got to be able to shut people yeah. up. You know, you've got to be able to shut people up that are using offensive language. And I didn't think that guy's sign was offensive or anything like mm. that and it was targeted at Tony Abbott and that type of thing. So... I don't know. It's, it's a um, situational thing, isn't it? It's there's a context. So it is. if you're in a comedy theatre down the valley, then you're expecting that sort of language. Um, if you're at a, exactly, yeah, at a um, yeah at the exhibition watching the fireworks at seven thirty with your kids, you don't really want every you know the guy next to you carrying on like that. So no, yeah. you don't. And it is. Um, it is one of those things. I think that um, I think the spoken word in that situation should be uh, brought under control. Mm. The written word, if he had actually used the word C U N T on his board rather than C inverted A in apostrophe T, mm. then I think that um, I think he would have had a different story. Mm. You know, because uh, you could have. You could have actually called him up for that. Just some facts and figures, dear listener, from this article. In the 12 months to March 2017, New South Wales recorded nearly 3,500 criminal incidents relating to offensive language. And 
Um, 90% of these dealt with the F word and the C word. And magistrate can impose a fine of 660 and a policeman can impose an on-the-spot fine of 500. And this guy makes the case that uh, there's a significant class dimension to this because people in the lower classes are more likely to use that sort of language, Aboriginal people, uh, of the cases, 35% involved Indigenous defendants. Um, so, yeah, uh, so yeah, there's a lot of talk about Section 18C in terms of vilifying and ridiculing religious and cultural groups, but there's quite a big restriction on speech from the insulting language provisions. Still on language and uh, that sort of stuff, Scott, there was that uh, advertisement, Meat and Livestock Australia ran <laughs> a lab, a lamb... And I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, it was a lamb, a lamb ad, <laughs> and it had various gods of various faith there, you know, supposedly yeah. talking about all different stuff. And... Um, the uh, Indian Society was not happy because of um, Hindu god Ganesha was depicted as eating lamb and Ganesha would be vegetarian and they've demanded an apology. Well, clearly the ad didn't cross any lines. That's an easy one. Well, the ad didn't cross any lines. It was... It was absolutely ridiculous that the, the Indian community got themselves all het up over it and it's in such a way to carry on like that. I mean, it's, um, you know, I didn't have a problem with the ad mm. at all. Go and have a look at it, dear listener, because it really didn't make any sense mm. at all. Anyway, Do you follow the mm. Secular Party Facebook page? Yeah, I do. Mm. Yeah. Oh, by the way, dear listener, I'm not a member of the Secular Party anymore. Scott... Scott still is, but I'm not. So if you missed the episode where I resigned, that was quite a while ago. But um, some people think I still am a member, but I'm not. So, Scott, I look at it and I had an argument, well, not an argument, a discussion with the 12th man because he's one of the administrators or editors of the Secular Party Facebook page. And, you know, I just find that a number of times in the comments there there are people, a few let's call them trolls, who don't really try and engage genuinely on the merits of an issue. They're just insulting and almost Donald Trump-like in their disregard for the truth and they just blurt stuff out and, um, and, and really avoid the issues and play the man and are very disruptive in a sense. I reckon on a Facebook page like that, the secular party should just block characters like that and tell them, well, if you're not going to genuinely try and participate, we don't mind an alternative opinion, but you've got to really be genuine in your arguments. I reckon they should just block them. Yeah, and I did talk to 12th Man about this and... um I'm not exactly certain why the decision was made not to block them, but it was uh, it was made not to block them. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly why, but it, um, anyway, it is yeah. Because mm. I, I like it, them. I tend to agree with you. I think that you. I think to yourself, if you've got people that are just there, just you know, 
you, you do have idiots that just throw rocks. And I think to myself, rather than engaging with them, you're better off just blocking them. You know? They're not genuine. And what they do is they vandalise the page so that people who might be interested in a topic look at it and go, ooh, this is a bit ugly. This is just ugly, angry atheists. I don't want to be part of this. I'll go somewhere else. That's what I reckon happens. And the 12th man is a big freedom of speech advocate more so than even yourself. And I said to him, well, this isn't a government page. This is a political party page. It's a private, well, it's a business, if you like, or an organisation. I think it's entitled to do some curating of the comments and it can give reasons why it's curating them in such a way. And if people don't like that system of curation, then too bad, make a judgment. But I reckon... It's open to them to kick some of these numbskulls off because it becomes unreadable when you're when you're reading stuff. Uh, you, you know, so many alternative facts start appearing, and they're not real facts. They're just Donald Trump type facts that just get in the way of understanding issues. So anyway, that's my view. Yeah, I think you got a reasonable position mm. there, mm. Scott. Sex Party changed its name. Did you hear about that? Yeah, they changed it to the uh, Reason Party. Actually, just Reason. It's not the Reason Party. They've just called themselves Reason. Mm. Yeah. So um, I think the old name was probably would have turned people off, do you reckon? I would imagine so. I mean, it was um, a fair amount of discussion was had over that at the uh, national executive level. And um, the... Argument was the the original argument was raised that it was originally set up as a bit of a joke and that type of thing just to catch the joke audience and that sort of thing. However, now that they've got a member of parliament and that sort of stuff, they actually had to. And you know, quite frankly, they are doing some running on um, areas of the pitch that should belong to the secular party but don't, mm. and they are getting a lot of media attention. Mm. So. Because of that, they've had to change their name, you know, to have a reason. And, you know, the reason well, reason party, I think, makes perfect sense for them, you know, because they are quite a reasonable organisation. Mm. Hugh Harris um, mm. arranged for Meredith Doig and myself to chat over the phone, which we did. And um, so she's, um, you know, president of the Rationalists and she's also... Uh, ran for the sex party and I guess we'll be running for the reason party um, down the track. And uh, we're just talking about various issues and just trying to gauge where they stand and on different things and um, different policies, Scott. And, you know, a lot of them very similar to um, secular party. And um, one thing I said to her, Scott, was... um, Please, you know, if you get a chance to talk about policies, can can you please raise this one particular issue that nobody talks about? And she said, what's that? Scott, what do you reckon the issue was? What's a favourite uh, hobby horse of mine that nobody talks about that I like to talk about all the time? The nodding politician? No, no not that one. <laughs> okay. Yes. Submarines? <laughs> I said, submarines, <laughs> Meredith. Nobody talks about it. She said, what do you mean about submarines? What's, what's there to know about submarines? So I just gave a very quick two-minute submarine 101 and promised to send her some more information. So 
fingers crossed, Scott, that that the <laughs> that reason as a major part of their platform will look at um, the submarine issue. That would be great. Yeah, uh, Scott. Um, it's often the case, isn't it, that secularists and atheists know more about uh, religious belief than the actual followers of the religions in question? It's because the uh, secularists and atheists and that sort of stuff who were part of a religion then started looking for a reason to stay in it and they ended up learning a hell of a lot more about the religion than those that are continuing to abide Mm. by it. And as a result, you end up with a better educated, um, better Bible literate uh, person. So on this podcast, we in the in the past have mentioned that when the uh, Protestants separated uh, from the Catholic Church in the Reformation, the three key things that that made them different were that faith in God is all important, and all you have to do is believe in God in order to get into heaven. That the Bible is all you need to. Uh, understand and take your moral guidance from, and you don't need advice from a pope or from some, you know, clergyman. That the that the rules of the religion come from the Bible, and the third one was that uh, you know anyone can be a preacher. That you don't have to be especially ordained, and you know, hang up your shingle and become a, pr- a preacher. That was the essence of the Reformation and what what makes a Protestant as opposed to a Catholic. And Pew Research did um, some research of Protestants in America. God, I wish we had a group like Pew Research in Australia. Scott, they often come up with really interesting stuff and we just don't seemingly have the population to justify it. But but basically, uh, nearly half of US Protestants today, um, 46%, say that faith alone is needed to attain salvation. a higher number, 52%, think that it's faith and good deeds that get you into heaven. That would be the Catholic position. But if you're a true Protestant, faith's all you need. They're also, they're also split on the Bible. So uh, instead of taking all of their moral guidance from the Bible, um, these Protestants, 46%, uh, only 46% thought that it solely came from the Bible and most of them thought that it was a combination of the Bible and official church teachings. So um, so no surprise to know that um, American Protestants really don't understand their own religion. No. It's not a surprise mm-hmm. at all, is it? Yeah. Scott, when we first mentioned cultural appropriation, it just seemed so far-fetched and... You know, it was tequila parties in the US with sombreros and stuff like that. But then we had the Writers Festival in Brisbane with um, Yasmin Abdul Majid um, railing against cultural appropriation in the speech by Lionel Shriver. Well, it's it's all coming home, dear listener, to Australian shores. And an art exhibition has been closed in Adelaide for appropriating a figure which is sacred to Aboriginal people from the Kimberley region. An Adelaide artist, Driller Jet Armstrong, has had his show closed down early for appropriating a sacred Aboriginal symbol. 
Scott, your thoughts? Um, I refer you to anything I've said about cultural appropriation in the last few episodes. It's ridiculous. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, she's been ta- the driller has been taken because it's a object that is culturally sent, that, that is, uh, what's the word I'm groping for? Significant. Uh, seen as divine and that sort of stuff by these Aboriginal people in the Kimberley. Mm. <clears throat> um. Driller should not have had his clo- his show closed down because mm-hmm. of that. It is absolutely ridiculous that you cannot reproduce something that someone else finds to be of significance. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely crazy. So what he was doing was, mm-hmm. um, to quote here, I take these rock, image- rock art images, I appropriate them and I reinsert them into the European landscape. So it's sort of a transformative thing as well, where taking taking stuff and and putting it in a different context. Scott, these people do not understand, um, you know, what's happened historically in the art world. Like one of my favourite artists is Van Gogh, and you know he was heavily influenced by Japanese printmaking, and you know he didn't copy it, but he he took elements of it and. In, incorporated that into his art and apparently Picasso um, took um, African masks like in the art world that's what happens and and that's when people talk about the beauty of diversity in the world and why multiculturalism is a great thing the idea is with diversity that we all get to share things and Exactly, yeah. which means every little bit of the every little bit of everyone's culture is up for appropriation. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, that's just a level of um, uh, cultural appropriation that's Stupidity. made it to Australia. <laughs> that was posted on the Secular Party Facebook page, and there was just you know outrage by people. Um, well, on different sides, you know, the extreme left view and extreme right view on that. One of the um, one of the things that came up was copyright. Would it be uh, in breach of copyright? And Scott, just briefly on something like copyright. I don't know who you'd have copyright on stone no, not, paintings. Not on though. ancient ones. So this is an ancient symbol yeah. from presumably thousands of years ago. Um, so hmm. you know, if I produced a um, a representation of that image you couldn't copy my interpretation of it if you know what I mean because I've got copyright but copyright expires so depending on when a work was created and on the type of it uh, under current law copyright usually expires 70 years after the death of the author or for anonymous works 70 years from the date of publication and that's a good thing, Scott. Like, copyright's designed to protect the economic interests of the person who created it. But ultimately, like patents, we all need to share in the knowledge eventually. So these rights have to expire at some point. So, um, you know, eventually the Beatles songs, dear listener, will be copyright-free. You'll be able to you know, copy and do whatever you like with them at some point um, when the copyright expires. That's just what happens. 
Scott, the um, uh, Secular Index added on there, Stuart Robert. Um, he's a guy who... Um, he's a really tricky one. He seems like a religious nutter, but he was an ex-military guy, so he's also come out in favour of military people being able to wear military uniform at the, at the gay Mardi Gras, uh, and he supports diversity in the military. Um, this is at the same time as being a member of a crackpot Pentecostal group who commit all sorts of nasty business in Africa in relation to the gay community. So, unfortunately, I had to tilt him over onto the side of secularist. I gave him a six um, because in terms of public statements in Australia, he, I would have to say, has actually exhibited some secular values, even though I suspect if I scratch deep enough in the, under the skin, it'd be another story to tell. But anyway, that was him added to the index, which has had various ones added. Uh, Matt and anybody else working out there, please dribble them through. Don't wait until you've got a whole bunch of them. Um, it'll just be easier for me to deal with them. Um, and I forgot to do mine this week. I uh, apologise uh, to everyone uh, that I said a couple of weeks ago that I was going to do two of them. I haven't done yeah. them. So. I'm going to crack the whip on you next week, Scott. <laughs> um, article here about a gay couple who oppose same-sex marriage. Did you see that one, Scott? I did see mm. that one. And I don't know what the hell their problem is. You know, it's... Um... It's, it's, it's a three-page article, dear listener, giving... Um, giving their thoughts, but this gay couple, uh, two guys um, who are against gay marriage. Scott, there was one uh, key line there, which is all you had to read to understand their motivation. Um, no, 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 I couldn't find it. Yeah, it where was, was it? Mark, a committed Catholic, comma, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you needed. It explains it all. Well, explains it all. It's like um, you know, you got to you got to wonder why the hell a guy that's in a committed relationship with another bloke, why he would be a committed Catholic. You know, it's uh, it doesn't make any yeah. sense to me. Anyway, it's got there's a bunch of articles. I won't go through them. They're about same sex marriage. People have had heard us banging on about it for ages. Uh, the survey is going to happen, and. Who knows? At the end of all this, people really might start turning against the churches as a result of this. Um, it remains to well, be seen. Well, I said to my better half this morning while we were out riding our bikes, and we rode past a house that was covered in rainbow flags and all that sort of stuff, and they had um, slogans on each of the rainbow flags. And I said to him after this, I said to him, because he said, he said he can't understand why the hell people are opposed to it. And I said, well, there are people that are opposed to it and that sort of stuff. And, you know, members of my family are opposed mm. to it, you know, which, which I find ridiculous. But um, it's, it really is bizarre when you scratch the surface and find out why they're opposed to it. And one of them was my sister-in-law. And, you know, she's a lovely lady and that sort of stuff. But she, she had put up on Facebook this uh, link to a woman that uh, was raised by lesbian parents that the ACL have now propagated as their own and that sort of stuff because she's opposed to gay marriage. 
And she says, I worry about the children. And I said to her, what's your physical address? I'm going to send you a documentary that if you watch with an open mind, you know, it will allay mm. your fears. Well, she didn't send me her physical address. Right. <laughs> you know, so it, it just it just strikes me as really, really bizarre that you've got people who are opposed to it. And for no other reason other than... Um, because the ACL said so, you know. One of these articles says and that the Catholics have sort of given up on the gay marriage one and they're just, um, they haven't got a lot of, you know, hard skin in the game on that and that they're um, more concerned about assisted dying. Uh, you know, that's... Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's and, for them. Mm. Well, and that, that is something that they're going to have to start worrying about. Mm. But one of the things I said to my better half this morning while we're out riding bikes, I said, well... I said, once this survey is over, and once we get the result back with a seven in front of it, and he reckons it'll come back with an eight in front of it, mm. but anyway, we'll, we'll see. Um, I said, what we've got to then do is we've got to then turn around and attack them. I said, because they've pushed on us, now it's time for us to push back. And he says, what do you want to push back on? I said, well, I said, I think it's about time they pay tax. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and he said, yeah, he said, that's true. I said, well, this is what we've got to do. We've got to then turn around and we've got to, we've got to take these people who have now been battle-hardened and that type of thing and we've got to turn them into soldiers to make them pay mm. tax. Mm. Mm. Very good, Scott. Yeah. All right, well, we've gone over time yet again. We'll um, <laughs> uh, not sure when this... This might have been published a few days after we actually recorded it, in which case if something amazing happened and we didn't talk about it, it's because of that delay in publishing it. But anyway, uh, dear listener... Thank you for tuning in. We'll catch up with you next week. Thank you very much for tuning in. Cheers. Bye now. Get in line in that processional. Step into that small confessional. They're the guy who's got religion. I'll tell you if your sin's original. If it is, try playing it safer. Drink the wine and chew the wafer. Two, four, six, eight. Time to transubstantiate us. So get down upon your knees. Fiddle with your rosaries. Bow your head with great respect. And genuflect, genuflect, genuflect. Make a cross on your abdomen. When in Rome, do like a Roman. Ave Maria. Gee, it's good to see you. Getting ecstatic and sort of dramatic. And I do in the Vatican. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast. And it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth 
more than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.